think we covered a lot, Rob. Like that was a very philosophical conversation we just had. And I, I didn't expect to be having that about apps. Hey guys, and welcome to the Coffee and Coding Podcast, the show where we discuss everything there is to know about app development. I'm your host, Rob J. And in today's episode, I talk to sales and marketing ninja and CEO of Mount Arbor, Andrew McAvinci. We talk about how to approach sales and marketing in 2020, small budget versus big budget marketing, the pros and cons of taking investment as a startup, organic versus paid reach, why you shouldn't do everything yourself, and much, much more. Now on to the show. Quick interruption before we get to today's episode. Somebody asked in the Slack channel this week how they can leave a review if they are not on iOS. Um, Excellent question. The answer to that is, as far as I know, the only other option is Podchaser. I don't know if it's an app, but I know that it's a website. So you can go on podchaser.com, you can find the podcast, and you can leave a rating and a review. And if you're so inclined to do so, that would be amazing. If you are on iOS, please leave a rating and review on iOS. And... If going to podchaser.com and searching the podcast is too much effort for you, then the link directly to this podcast on podchaser.com for you to leave a review is handily in the show notes. And segueing nicely off from that, that question was asked in the Slack community. So if you haven't yet joined the Slack community, you can do so at coffeeencodingpod.com slash Slack. It's a great opportunity to talk to your fellow listeners and like-minded developers. It's a great opportunity to talk to me if you have some sort of interest to want to do so. And so I've had quite a few people on the Slack channel actually DMing me about getting into app development. They're they're just starting out in their careers. They've done a bunch of online learning. They've done this, they've done that. They've got some portfolio stuff. And what do I think they need to know in order to get a junior app developer's job or a mid-level job? So I've been trying to provide some feedback in there. Hopefully the people that I've spoken to have found it useful. And we potentially may have our first coffee encoding hiring success story. I don't know if that's the right way to term it, but essentially there was someone in the community that was talking to me about this. At the same time, I got approached on LinkedIn by a recruiter for a startup, which seemed really interesting. We had a chat. Um, it turns out it wasn't for me, but I put this guy forward because I thought it might be it might be a good opportunity for him. And also he seemed, from what he told me, very qualified for the job. And he is currently in the tech test stage of that process. So hopefully that goes well. And I'll get to say that I helped somebody get hired from the Slack community. And that would be a pretty awesome outcome. So fingers crossed that he gets it. So now on to today's episode. So I met Andrew in 2016 in Bali, which if you don't know me, is by far my most favoritist place in the whole world. And we met because we were both on a program that was kind of like a startup incubator, but not really. Essentially, it was a program for people to travel to Bali. And it was for people that were a bit entrepreneurial. It was targeted specifically at digital nomads, you know, people that want to travel indefinitely and live their life from a laptop and come up with business ideas that kind of revolve around that and allowing them to do that. And they put a group of you together and you all kind of work on your own stuff and you help each other out with different ideas and what they're doing. And, you know, my skill is app development and somebody else's skill is marketing and somebody else's skill is something else. So you kind of all use the knowledge that you have to help each other to try and push your ideas forward. 
And I remember at the time, so Andrew is super understated. He doesn't brag about what he knows. He doesn't brag about stuff that he's done. And I remember at the time, you know, he was super pumped about everybody else's idea. You tell him, I want to do this. And he's like, yes, you could do this. You could do this. These are all the different things. I think you should do this. And I distinctly remember he was finding it hard to kind of figure out what his idea was or what his business was that he wanted to work on. And it came out through the course of conversations with other people's business that he'd be talking about other people's businesses and trying to help them out with that. And he'd say things like, oh, yeah, I remember when I was at Google, this thing happened. And you'd be like, wait, so you worked at Google. And then another conversation, you know, the guys at IBM, I told them to do this, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, so you worked at IBM. And so, you know, after a little bit of time, all of us were like, mate, your idea needs to involve sales and marketing because that's what you know. And that is what you are amazing at. So that was 2016. And now you fast forward to 2020. And now he's CEO of the sales and marketing company Mount Arbor. Now, I know a lot of developers like me struggle with sales and we struggle with marketing. We're really good at the technical stuff. We might even really be good at the ideas phase, but we're not necessarily really good at selling or pushing that idea or growing it. So this is definitely an episode for people that are like-minded in that way and also people that just want to get a really good grasp of what they should be doing next if they're already in the sales and marketing phase of their idea. There were so many sound bites in this episode. It was ridiculous. And yeah, I guess I'll just let the rest of the conversation speak for itself. So here is my conversation with Andrew. I'm doing all right. Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a very long time. Yeah. How long? About four years, three years, something I think like that? Four years. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, probably a bit more. It's too long. You're, you're looking great. I've been, I've been keeping tabs on you on Instagram. That's about it. Yeah, I've been as well. I was doing a bit of Googling just before and I was looking on YouTube and I was like, oh, he's, he's looking awfully sharp. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what one you found because I vary my look according to who I'm talking to. <laughs> I mean, the, one, the ones I saw, they look very good. So Okay. <laughs> That's all smoke and mirrors, isn't it? <laughs> uh, I mean, it doesn't look like smoke and mirrors right now, unless you've got some sort of zoom filter on as well. So No, well, I've got my lights on because I was doing a lot of recording today. So I've got all my lights on for my video stuff. Yeah, sorry I was delayed getting to you because we just put the baby in the bath around this time and I I completely forgot that that's the normal routine. So I just said to my wife, take, take the baby, <laughs> take the baby to go talk to Rob. So I literally just... I dropped her in the bath and ran out the door. So It's, it's good that you didn't log in earlier because you would have just heard me making weird sounds in my microphone to make sure that it was working properly. So Oh, nice. Well, you're very fancy. I don't know. I've got this thing on because I've been using it for my recording. I don't know if the sound is okay because it said the sample rate was wrong. I don't know about sample rates, but the sound sounds really good and it looks super fancy. So Well, that's all I want. It's just important that I look fancy. That's all I care about. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so so I know a little bit. I, 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 all I did was I looked on your LinkedIn because I know what I remember and then I know a little bit, but like professionally speaking, I don't know so much, right? So I was looking on your LinkedIn before and the things that I pulled out of it were that you've worked at Vodafone, you were a lecturer and a course designer at Digital Skills Academy, um, you've worked at Epsilon, I've got a product marketing manager at IBM, you've done some work at Google, and you are, I believe you're currently the CEO of Mount Arbor. That's right. Okay, cool. All right. So there's a bunch of stuff there that I wanted to dig into. But before I dig into that, what I'm interested in is how did you get started? Yeah, I mean, I guess just that to start with is how did you get your start in this and what attracted you to this sort of area? Okay, well, that's probably going back a long while. You know, I got into sales and marketing a long time ago. 
And I should say I got into marketing a long time ago because I got into sales after I got into marketing. And there's, there shouldn't be a difference, but there is in terms of like what you do, like the activities of sales are different from the activities of marketing. But um, I got into marketing after college because I, I did science in college and I didn't really know what I wanted to do because I knew I didn't want to work in a lab in a laboratory just doing experiments. I was a biochemist and I didn't really want to be a biochemist. So then I did computer science. And then at the time, the internet was taken off. Like this shows you how old I am. Like the internet was the next big thing. And are we talking like, is this like 90 something? It was or 2000. I think I graduated uh, 2000. Yeah, it was around 2000 that I got out of the computer science master's degree. And at that stage, there was a lot of things going around around digital marketing, but it was just a kind of a thing that was starting. You know, Twitter was new and YouTube was new. All this stuff was kind of new and exciting and more computer science related than it was related to business. But in the States, it was way more advanced because they actually had good internet connections over there that would carry video. And that wasn't in Ireland at the time. So I just moved to America and I got my training in marketing over there because I couldn't get a job. I had to have a job in the States uh, to have my visa. So I started off um, fixing computers over there for a, for a company. And then I got talking to somebody and they were saying, well, we need somebody to set up video streaming kind of marketing thing. So that's how I got into marketing. I, I ended up doing an apprenticeship in a marketing agency for about 18 months. Whereabouts in the States was that? In Chicago. Okay, so that's so that's how you started marketing. Was it like you liked it and you carried it on or was it just like a natural career progression? It was it was an accidental career progression, but I did like it because I found myself useful and I hadn't been useful for about six years at least at that point, because I had been studying uh, science in a laboratory. So I like the social side of it, like the actual relevance to real life that marketing has. And so I, I learned a lot from them as well around project management and how to put together a project. They were meticulous. They're only a small boutique agency and they used to do things to the like minutest detail. They would have everything kind of checked off on tasks. And, you know, they were so perfectionist about everything. And so when I came back to Ireland, I just was so equipped to get into digital marketing because I had done things that no one in Ireland had done before. And I was able to go straight into Vodafone or the Digital Skills Academy or the way I got my job in Vodafone was I actually just promoting myself on sales. I just did sales for an award show and I got Vodafone to sponsor the award show. And this is going back a long way, but I wanted the best job in mobile content because I knew that was the next place to go. And so I got Vodafone to sponsor and I made a deal with the awards organizers that I would get the room that Vodafone sponsored. And I was able to basically meet everybody in Vodafone. And by the time they left, I had a job in Vodafone. And I got to be a product marketing manager for Vodafone for about two years, just developing mobile products, like stuff that came out before the iPhone. The iPhone then just <laughs> wiped everything off, you know. But that's kind of how I got into marketing. So that, that's quite a big um, hack to, to get a job right there. Yeah, well, I, it was funny because... I suppose at the time, I wasn't sure how I was going to get on in Ireland because I came back to Ireland unexpectedly because my visa fell through. My job application didn't go in. And it was just a big mess. By the time I got back to Ireland, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And um, I was finding that uh, without knowing people, I was being kind of shown the door. And I knew that I could do stuff that was that has a time limit on it. Like I had some serious chops when it came to digital stuff. But that's got a half-life of about two years or a year. So I was like, I need, to, I need to get on this right away. And yeah, so I kind of was a bit um, inventive about how I, 
got, got the job. Yeah, I like it. So, so is it a half-life because of how quickly things move? Yeah. Like there's, there's core principles that don't change. And then there's the tools and stuff that you use to achieve results. They change all the time. You know, I can go into more detail on that later. But, but basically, if you, attire, if you tie yourself to a specific technique or tool, you've got about 18 months before you have to learn new things. Okay, that's really interesting. All right, so before we, we dig into that a bit more, you mentioned sales and marketing is different. Just imagine that I'm just, or don't, don't even imagine, I'm a developer. What's the difference between sales and marketing? Cliff notes are that traditionally sales and marketing have always been at odds. And if you go into a larger company, you'll always have sales are going to sit over there and marketing is going to sit over there. But like as an independent contractor, uh, someone who owns a small business, generally those things get kind of merged. But it even helps to just think about sales and marketing is different when you're carrying out the activities daily. You know, I'm going to do sales today. I'm going to do marketing tomorrow. The way I look at it is that marketing is about lead generation and sales is about closing those leads, generally speaking. And the ways that you would do, the ways that you would tra- attract people to your business might be different from how you get people to sign up for your service or buy your product, or they might be exactly the same. But that's generally how I look at it. And then when it comes to organizations, how you organize marketing and sales gets really complex. Like how you start to how how you start to orchestrate the passage of a customer from speaking to one end of your business to the other end of the business. Which I, I think in layman's terms is the sales funnel, right? Am I getting that right? Yeah. Um, this is this is how little knowledge I have. So well, let me let me uh, let me kind of interrupt your funnel idea then because the funnel has kind of been shown to be counterproductive in a way because the idea of a funnel is that it's a numbers game so you're you're basically you're throwing as many possible customers into the top of your funnel and then at the bottom you're going to get if if you want that month you want 10 customers you might throw a thousand customers or leads up at the top of the funnel and that's been the model for a long time especially on the internet especially with technology because because the wide net you can throw with with the internet, you can advertise to 10,000 and hope to convert maybe 100 of them. But what they're finding now is it's actually more of a circular model. So like, this is a better model, like the idea of a, a circle, right? And what you're doing is you're attracting people in, then you're engaging them here at the bottom of the, of the what they're calling the flywheel. You're, you're engaging with them by, by using the sales team down here. And then when they come up to the top of the, the circle or the flywheel, that's where you're doing customer success and like basically giving them the service. And the, the reason it's a circle is because you don't want the customer just to drop out and go away. You want the customer to come back and up, you want to upsell them more product. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. You want okay. them to be telling other people and you want to add value all the time. So what's happening is like, I've written a lot of blogs about this actually, but what's happening is that if you can imagine, like this is a mad analogy, right? But imagine you have a glass of orange juice, right? And you get a wheel, like a spinning wheel, and you put it on the ground and you spin the wheel, right? Imagine that glass of orange juice is all the value that you're going to offer a customer. Beginning to end of their life with you, that's all the value that you're going to offer them. Now, what used to happen before was that the salesperson would would probably hold most of that glass of orange juice when they deal with the customer. And that's why they got paid so much because the salesperson is going to basically deliver most of the value in the deal. Like they're going to say, you can have this, this and this. And then they sign the contract and off the customer goes with a back pocket full of whatever they bought. But take us back to the wheel, right? The wheel's spinning and we're going to get that orange juice and we're going to pour it onto the wheel, right? And what happens to the orange juice? It just spreads out to the edges, right? And it covers, it uniformly covers the whole wheel, right? So it's all spinning out to the edges. Now, if you go back to your original idea of like, this is the customer journey, right? It's circular. 
the customer's getting value the whole way around the circle. So that means that the salesperson doesn't hold all the cards anymore. The marketing person offers value, the salesperson offers value, the customer success guy offers value. So like sales is totally different now. Sales is more about like the idea that you're able to anticipate exactly what the customer needs at each point in their journey with you. Yeah, totally. No, that makes perfect sense because it it makes more sense that you should get someone into, you know, whatever you're selling, you get someone in and then you want them to keep coming back, right? Rather than the sales funnel where you get someone in or they buy something and now you have to get someone else in. So it's just like this constant like treadmill of people coming through, going, people coming through, going. This, this, yeah, that makes more sense to me. Yeah. Well, it's it's always a kind of um, stereotype that people have of sales. And that's why it took me a while to get into sales because I had this stereotype myself. You know, I didn't really want to get into sales because I had this idea that salespeople were a certain kind of person. And they, you have to sell a certain kind of way. You have to be all all hands. And, you know, I guarantee that you'll love this product. But actually, that's changed a lot now. And what, what I'm finding is that I'm actually fitting into the sales world a lot more easily because the, the older sales guys aren't having as much success. The older methods of sales aren't working as well as they used to. And the ones that are working are way more related to digital marketing and kind of keeping a track of having an idea of what the customer is actually looking for and giving it to them. I've got, all right, I've got so many questions. But the first one is, so you created a course and you were a lecturer for Digital Skills Academy. You know, we're, we're talking a few years back. But what I'm interested in is how did that come about and how did you find the teaching process and specifically what's changed or, you know, is outdated since you taught that course? Because I know you said every 18 months something new happens, right? So does that mean that when you taught that course, the things that you taught are outdated or were they like fundamental principles that still apply, but just differently today? Um, well, that one was a funny one because I was in Vodafone and I was approached to do, I was approached to lecture on a program that there's a university in Dublin called the Institute of Art, Design and Technology. And so what they have there is they have an entrepreneurship school, they have an art school, and they've got a business school. Sorry, art, entrepreneurship, uh, art and technology, right? So they created this master's program. Somebody came up with the bright idea, like what if we put people from each one of those schools in the same room and got them to work on, on apps together? And th- when they did it, they realized, well, this is this is probably going to be really useful for entrepreneurship. Like we could probably create a few apps out of it because at the time people were creating apps and making a fortune, you know. So what they needed was a bit of a steer on what kind of apps would actually work for the market and how to do marketing, how to do sales of these apps. So that's why they brought me in because that's what I was doing in Vodafone. I was just in charge of selling apps basically. And um, so I had I had a view on the whole global market of of app developers and who was buying what and so on. So I was brought in to, to kind of coach on that program. And one of the things I loved about the program was that it was very project based and it was based on creating real business value. So that's what I brought to the other program that I helped to develop, which was all based on projects. And it was based on the idea that you could work alongside another business. Like we found businesses around Ireland that wanted to work with keen young app developers from different backgrounds like we find people who couldn't get a job because they were in fine arts or if they were in project management or anything in the recession they lost their jobs but they were still super smart so i just taught them i taught them the basic principles of digital marketing app development web communication stuff like that and then put put them all in a group together like groups of maybe five people and they would just pitch ideas and we would develop their apps so i didn't answer your question what what has, hasn't changed is how people work with creative ideas. That's always the same. But what has changed is how they go about applying those ideas. And 
what I always fall back on is the idea of a snapshot. So at any one point you want to develop something, you just take a snapshot at this moment of what's going to help you achieve it and then forget about everything else because it just gets really confusing otherwise. Okay, that makes sense. Um, So you said something interesting, which I don't know if you can... I don't know if there's a Cliff Notes version to this, right? But you were like, the principles, I think it was the principles of digital marketing don't change. So, or like the core, the core basis of that. So what is, as a layman, what is the core basis, excluding technologies, excluding, you know, the different methods of advertisement and stuff? Are they like the key principles of what digital marketing looks like or what you should think about when you're approaching it? regardless of what tool you're using okay so th- this this probably would be controversial like i'd sometimes go up against like a an seo black hat specialist say right somebody who's just really good at like game in the system right and they w- they get short-term wins sometimes they can push it for a while but i think fundamentally um if you look at the search engine fa- the, who the search engine favors which is what we're talking about when we talk about digital marketing like when I search for something that I want, what do I find? And also, you know, in terms of what I develop, what's going to be most relevant to customers in the digital marketplace. And one thing that doesn't change is being authentically valuable to your customer across the board. So any kind of bullshit doesn't fly for very long. That's how I look at it. And the other the other part of it is simplicity. So like I was looking at Occam's Razor uh, this morning in a book I was reading, which is like a 13th century monk who used to rip shreds off all of these highfalutin thinkers of the, of the time, he used to say, the most simple solution is always the truest one. Like, you've got to come up with the simplest solution. And and Einstein used to say the same thing. He used to say, um, when you're looking at really complex problems, the problems that are able to be the simplest without sacrificing one piece of data that's relevant to your problem, that's the, that's probably the correct one. Like that's, that's, that's true of all digital marketing. It's like you try to simplify as much as possible without losing any of the data. That's the same principle in programming as well. Yeah. The simplest solution is the best solution. Yeah, exactly. I think that's why marketing, marketing has become so interwoven with programming. You know, that's why you see all these new uh, marketing platforms coming out because the programmers understand marketing better than anybody now. I mean, some of them, not all of them. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know, you understand it pretty good as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, so to to a point, I think my understanding is very um theoretical and I I understand what it's supposed to look like. I don't understand the steps of how to get there. I think I think is the thing. I think I think if you see it as a program like an algorithm you're trying to write, that's when digital marketing makes sense. That's all it really is. It's just an if-then chain of events. That's that's really all digital marketing has become at this point. So if you look at any of the marketing auto- automation platforms like HubSpot, we're a HubSpot partner. So I based my whole business on HubSpot because it's just, it's a really nice user interface and it does everything that a marketing automation platform should do for businesses. And if you look at all that, all it really is, is just a series of if-then flows that happen when people perform certain actions and underneath all that there's like things like content that you have to write there's stuff you have to offer people to kind of get them to perform an action but actually it's just it's exactly the same as programming and in fact there's a real advantage to being able to program when you're looking at marketing because the marketers don't get it do you know what i mean the things you the things you eliminate and the logic you use are things that market marketers don't think that way so what marketers sometimes think about more is things like branding. So like I make a distinction between branding and digital marketing because branding is more about, you know, colors and putting your name out there. And there's plenty of value to it. There's a lot of emotional importance that 
customers need to have the right colors and stuff. But actually, digital marketing is way more algorithmic and structured. That makes sense. So then I guess the question is, if we if we go off that, let's say, so I understand that if then this, you know, if somebody takes this action, do this. And if they don't take the action, you want do something else. Right. That make that makes sense to me. But I guess what doesn't make sense to me and like, I don't want to speak for everybody listening, but all the programmers, let's just say all the developers I know, which is a bunch of them, right, is how do you get to that point where I have something and it could be, let's just say it's an app, but it could be whatever you want, right? And I want to engage people to be able to get to that point where I can say, right, well, if they took this action. So basically, how do I get people into or onto the wheel? If we're not saying it's a funnel, how do you get people onto the wheel? Because, and like to give you a real life example. So I have an app that reads text messages and WhatsApp messages on your headphones, right? And the times that I've thought about doing marketing, the one big thing that I come against is at least in my head, I don't have a target audience. Like I couldn't go on Facebook ads and say, right, I want 30 year olds that are male and they play sports and they have an iPhone. Because to me, the app that I built should appeal to anybody that has headphones. And so for me as an independent developer with a budget of, you know, $50, that's too wide a net to cast. So how do you approach that sort of problem? Because yeah, so I have another question that I wanted to ask later, which is what's the difference between bootstrap marketing, which is, you know, an independent developer, they can spend $100 a month versus seeded. But I guess I don't know if they're both the same question or separate, but how would you approach that problem of how do I get people onto that wheel? Hmm. Okay, two, two big questions. Yeah, which one I go first? Okay, I'll take your first question first. Okay, so the the idea around the app developer like yourself who has an app that does a certain thing, what what struck me as you were describing it is that the first thing I would do is try to reverse your point of view. Because you were saying like you don't have a target market, but you have a product that you feel like a target market might like if you could just attract the right people into looking at your product. Now, that's not unusual. Like even as an independent developer, um, you're not different from most of the companies I would have worked with over the years. Like I worked a lot with SaaS companies with digital products that they wanted to sell. And these were like funded, you know, 20, 40 million dollar investment companies that like were on series B funding. And a lot of the time I would approach the CEO and say exactly the same thing, which is just because you've spent so much time developing the product, it's really difficult to change your perspective to look at it from the customer's point of view. And I, everybody says it, but what I like to think about it is is that you've already got a bias on the product side anyway because you've developed the product. So it's like sunken cost. You, you, you've just got your head so deep in the weeds with it. So the thing to do is to take the product off the table altogether for a second. Just put it on the shelf. It's not going anywhere. And think about the person you're trying to sell to. And then understand what they need from their daily existence that your product is going to solve. Like, And I know that's kind of brass tacks, but it really helps to to decide who you want to sell to first. So even if it's not the right market, it really helps to figure out who would you like to sell to. And then you can start to build out your attraction uh, strategy based on what they're actually dealing with each day. So there's a really good conference actually that my brother organizes in America called the Industry Conference. And he, he partners with a bunch of people. It's a huge conference now. And he partners with a guy called Bob Moesta who talks a lot about the jobs to be done framework. And that's a good framework to study, like to read about, because what it does is it gives you a sense of how to think about your product from the customer's point of view with the idea that you're hiring a product to fulfill a certain task or function. So like to dig into your product, run something that reads WhatsApp messages to you 
on your headphones. Is that right? You're kind of getting a that that would be the gist of it. Yeah. So that's the that's the basis of a product. But then what you've got to do is figure out. Let's say we're I'm looking at the window and there's two lovely girls walking past my window, going for a walk in the sunshine. Right. So let's imagine those two girls, like they're both 22 fit girls on, on a walk together, having a good chat, and they want to stay connected to their friends while they're talking. And what a lot of the time they'll, they'll interrupt their conversation to look at their phone. And what you're doing is you're going to have them wear one iPhone iPod in their ear thing while they're walking so that they can stay in touch with any, anything that's urgent or notified and you know, whatever. And suddenly your, suddenly your product becomes something relevant to that person because that you're solving a particular issue that they might care about. And the way you go from there, then is you start to maybe like the most immediate thing you could do is call a few of them and say, would this be something that would help you? And then they kind of go, yeah, no, not really. And get a sense of them a bit more. That's where the work is done. And like, we're, we're kind of doing a very basic example, but like, that's the kind of stuff I would do with product companies. A lot of the time is just say, let's take ourselves out of the product for a while and let's, let's talk to five customers. Let's talk to five people and really dig into like interview them and like, let's really talk to them. And then that's how you build your marketing. Cause you just, you basically repeat back to them what they've said to you. Yeah. I gotcha. I gotcha. That makes sense. It's just because it's hard to do when you've built the product. Because yeah, for, for one sure. thing, you don't want to change the product because that's the way it is and that's the way it has to be. The way that you've said it now, it's like, you know, the the world is a circle and I'm, I've am i got this square that I really want to put in the circle <laughs> and I can't. Exactly. And I'm trying to figure out, like, how do I get it to fit? Yeah. Where it's like, it doesn't have to be that way. You could figure out. It's the worst thing to be walking around with this really expensive product that you've built and trying to find somebody that wants it. Like if you're at an early stage of development, the the earlier you can start talking to people who might buy it, you can make deals with the people that take it too, that you can say, look, you can, I can give this to you for free, use it for a while. Tell me what you think. That's, that's way better because I was talking to a guy this morning who has a really cool app, um, really cool SaaS platform he's building. It's a really complicated analytics platform. And, uh, he was saying a lot of the time, the stuff he's showing in his app, people get in PowerPoint presentations, like really long PowerPoint presentations. And he's saying he gets it all into a dashboard and it's great. So I said to him, well, what about if you, if you built an export to PowerPoint thing? You know, that might be the thing that makes people buy the product, even though it's really easy for him to build that little feature to export it all to a crappy PowerPoint. Like, who, like he wants everything to be in this thing, but maybe his customers want the thing and also want the PowerPoint export. And that could that could push them over the edge, you know. So it's little things like that you get from talking to customers. I can't remember your second question. Yes. So the other question that leads on to what you said is so I'm gonna tell you what I know and then you can tell me whether it's wrong or what I'm missing, right? So I know that in terms of marketing, so I work for a startup right now and they spend marketing money on Instagram and Facebook and and all of this kind of stuff. But I also know as a independent developer or as a small startup, right? Let's just say me and my buddy have got an idea. And so we don't have a budget to funnel in, you know, thousands of dollars or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars a month to promote this product. We have, you know, a hundred dollars or at a stretch two or let's say 500, right? So we have a really small budget. So what's the difference or how would you approach a marketing strategy for this big company that can be like, right, let's run 50 different campaigns. Let's target, you know, hundreds of thousands of people versus a smaller company that has a smaller budget and probably can't target everyone. They have to pick and choose who are, who are they targeting? What platforms are they using? And they have to be really um, specific with how they evaluate those results. Like what's the difference in how you approach marketing between those two different types of company? 
I have a I have a chart. Do you want me to show you a chart? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Well, give me one second. I'm gonna I'm gonna take this thing off. I'm gonna show you a chart. It's a little ripped because I I was gonna throw it out, so I started ripping it up, and I was like, actually, maybe that'll be handy sometime. So here we go. Um, let me see. I'm a great man for diagrams. So this is a chart that you made, right? Yeah. Can okay. you see it? Yeah, I can see it. Okay. So, uh, this is your break even, right? This is this is life. No matter if you're a SaaS startup with funding or if you are an independent contractor with very little money, that's what you need to pay your bills, keep a roof over your head and eat food, okay? And this is money, right? This is how much money you have over time. This is the time at the bottom. If you are starting a business of any kind, there's a moment where you have money and then you have none like and it's it's inevitable this is going to happen that like two years in there's a crunch where it doesn't matter what you've done there's always a crunch two two years in and then it's only the third year and the fourth year that you start to see no matter what you've done some revenue come in that you can actually pay yourself an equivalent salary to what you had before you started your business so even startup founders go through this and then you start to see profit move in there to the oh my god i'm rich type of scenario and so I think what happens is that people get to the crunch phase in the middle and they give up, like they give up after the two years because they've no money. So they, 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 haven't, quite, they haven't adequately prepared for what they're going to have to go through. So your question was around funding, seeding your company or being bootstrapped. And all, it, all, it, all it's down to is how you can finance that first two years, especially the second year when all your friends have lost interest because you're not going to the parties anymore. You know, all your money's going into your business, so it's there's nothing coming back. But the compounding effect of what you're doing in that second year is where you start to make dividends in five years in. You, you, you and I came across this when we were digital nomads. You know, it, like the idea that you can do it in six months, I think is false. Like, I don't believe that you can do it in six months. Even with an amazing app, you still got to give yourself two years to get through the hump and onwards and I think that's why a lot of startups tend to kind of take the take the investment up front at the beginning. So they're they're at a loss and then they've got this thing where they've got a they've got a hustle for three to five years to pay back the investors and then make the profit. And that's where you see the hockey stick thing. Whereas bootstrapped, it's more of a it's more of a linear chart. It's like I make this much, I profit this much, and then I can pay myself this much. And it just you do it in increments. So that you're not you're not in debt to anyone, but like the first year or two, they're difficult because you're going through that hump. So that's the way I look at it. Like, there's a really good book actually. I'd recommend to you uh, this one here, Profit First. Okay, yeah. all right, yeah, I'll put a link to that in show notes. That sounds all right. I'll, I'll give it a read. Yeah, I, I like books that are outside of my normal domain. So I will I will say that when it comes to app development, I think that app developers that I've met are a little afraid of getting involved with investors and other teams. And I think that's counterproductive, actually. From my own experience, I think there's no harm, especially if you've got something that's really valuable. Like if you're talking about an app that just, like I know you've built a ton of apps and some of them are just things you can throw out there and people use and you're happy to have them. But if you've got something that like has real market value, you've got a certain window of time that that's going to be valuable. And there's no harm in getting that chunk of cash in the door at the beginning to cover that first three years um, and to get to know what it means to get seed funding, to get Series A, Series B, because those are really important 
another friend of mine has a way of looking at it. It's like uh, things are in five tens and no ten uh, five tens, thirties, and hundreds. So getting to your first five thousand a month, ten thousand a month, thirty thousand a month, and then hundred thousand a month. There, there just there's always some kind of a change when you get to those points. So to get from 10 to 30, you're kind of like, yeah, everything's going great. And then everything just plateaus. And then to get from 30 to 100 to have a proper business is really hard, you know? So that's where the funding comes in. So then so then something that you said when you were looking at the chart was, no matter what you do, this is how it looks, right? But surely there's things that you should not do. I guess the question is, no matter what you do, there must be things that you should, like, are there things that you should not do? Yeah, I've done all of them. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. <laughs> I've done all the things you shouldn't do. Um, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I suppose, like, because I tell you what, right, just from my own personal experience, I was thinking about this recently, like, because of the world we, we move in, like, we're always exposed to new technology, new trends, things that are coming down the line. And like, I think even when we first met, there was stuff coming down the line that I was like, oh, my God, that's going to be huge. And it can be very distracting to kind of chase after every little thing that comes up. But at the same time, I think just committing to one thing is really important just sticking with it like you've done with android and just apps in general that can really help the other thing is collaboration and working with people is way more beneficial for me anyway than than doing it on my own even though i'm kind of an introvert and i kind of like to work on my own i i think that there's way more benefit in giving away pieces of your thing to to actually get the full value out of it you know like I had a conversation with someone recently about this, like they had a, they were starting a company and she was doing it all herself and she was like working 60 hours a week and stuff. And a company had approached her and had offered her help for like a percentage of the business. And she was like, I don't know, I don't know. And I was just, what struck me, I just said to her, um, it doesn't matter what you give away as long as you get what you want. As long as you know what you want, then it doesn't matter. Just be super clear about what you want and then just, you know, fuck it. <laughs> Just give it away. That makes sense. Yeah, you you basically want to know what the goal is, right? And if it's going to work towards your goal, then it's fine. Yeah, and and it, it always used to frustrate me with developers in particular because they love to develop and they love to get into it and they love to get their hands dirty. And that's like to me, that's like I understand it because I did the same thing myself when I was coding. And you know, as a kid, I used to like doing that kind of thing. And when when I saw developers doing that kind of thing, I realized that there's an awful lot of them in their sheds in the back garden, not talking to their families, you know, and it's unnecessary. You know, you could, if you want to, if you want to code for fun, do that. If you want a business, don't do the advertising yourself. Don't do the digital marketing yourself. Don't do, don't do everything. Don't build your own website. Get out of it. Even it, like, especially because you know that you can learn it and do it don't do it yeah okay so really it will be do do the thing you're good at which would be you know developing the app or whatever and then get people in to help you to do all the things that you don't know how to do it depends on and like if your thing is to develop and develop for other people that's one thing that's cool but if your thing is to create a business the sooner you can get out of the coding and into the creation of your business the better the sooner you can pay people to do it for you in ukraine the better gotcha okay that's a really good that's a really good um answer i'm not sure if it's an answer to a question but it's a really good it's a really good topic of discussion let's say yeah <laughs> that's super interesting okay so i've got a couple questions left and one of them is so I'm, I'm trying to think of a good way to word it so all right so i'll put it like this so you have there's two things that again buzzwords these are what i know about so you tell me where i'm getting wrong so there's content marketing right which is 
you put out articles or you put out videos or some sort of content as a promotional tool for whatever it is that you're doing. And then there's, I guess that that's the question is there's, so there's content marketing, but my question is you have paid content marketing, which is I write an art, let's say I write a post on LinkedIn and then I pay to promote it. Right. And then you have just organic reach. I write a post on LinkedIn. I try and do all the right hashtags and then you know, hopefully people see it and it achieves what my goal is. So where do you sit on paid versus organic? And do you think like in 2020, is it realistic to expect anything from organic reach versus paid? It's a good question. I'm I'm smiling because I had the conversation recently with a friend of mine who runs an agency and we did some competitive analysis on um, some companies and we were able to see like what kind of traffic they were getting and some of them were getting enormous amounts of traffic. And if you go to Ahrefs, the um, SEO tool, you can figure out how much they would be normally paying for Google ads for the same amount of traffic. That's all organically generated. And the numbers are incredible. Like thousands are being saved in ad spend by having good content. But the problem people have with content is it takes time to do and takes time to kick in. And people don't know how to do the right kind of content. It's, I heard somebody talk about it in terms of like there's interruptive advertising and then there's inbound marketing. And inbound marketing is HubSpot's thing. They've been talking about it for 10 years. The idea that like you don't want to talk to people about your product unless they're really interested. And so it makes sense that you've put up a few articles about what you're selling and stuff. But the only way that works in 2020 is if you're doing it from an authoritative point of view, like if you're doing really top quality stuff. And I follow a lot of people who like I'm I geek out about this stuff, probably the way you geek out about whatever apps are going out and whatever. So like there's a couple of people I follow that are crazy into just organic SEO stuff and you know, there's one guy I know that's that's just got a side project making him 30 grand a month or something just with inbound traffic. And he loves just creating content that's valuable for people. That's really, really, really good content. content. Like he won't publish an article unless he's researched it thoroughly. And it's like it could be 10,000 words of an article. So he's not doing this like itty bitty social media, put stuff out every day, kind of like light fare. Because the problem with that stuff is you can't compete with the bigger companies for, you know, for audience share. So that's inbound. It's like inbound is all about creating authoritative content. And if you can do that now, if you can start to present, if you can start to put together that if for your WhatsApp thing, for example, you could write six articles about what those two girls are into related to WhatsApp, like six articles about like, um, you know, I don't know what you'd write for them, but like just write really authoritative content for, for stuff that they would be interested in do reverse keyword analysis on the kind of things they search for somewhat related to your app you'll see you'll see dividends from that in six months time on your website and that stays forever like that's an asset that you have if you're doing ads they don't stay with you forever they're they're just they're quick wins but there's nothing wrong with ads and so then there's a whole other school of thought on the interruptive marketing stuff that like the likes of ClickFunnels and Russell Brunson's stuff about ClickFunnels is always really interesting to read. And you can get really like kind of anxious about it because it's just, it's right there. You just, all you need to do is say the right things, they click on your ad, then they buy your thing. Um, but I'd recommend Russell Brunson for that end of things because he's very clever about how he thinks about interruptive advertising. Um, if you think about a Facebook ad to a funnel, 
everybody thinks they understand what that is, but actually what he's doing is he's, he's thinking about it psychologically, how to show an ad that speaks to, speaks to a present concern that someone has, be as like low friction as possible, and then give them a ton of value upfront, like give them everything you can upfront um, so that they hand over their credit card. And once somebody's paid you, something psychologically happens to people once they've paid you once, they just go, oh yeah, okay, throw that in too. And yeah, it's just some trust It's thing. like subscriptions, right? You subscribe to something and then you see it coming out of your account every month and you don't use it, but you're like, oh yeah, it's fine. And I'll cancel it at some point. That's why I was always jealous of you in the app development world because if there's one thing I know is that there, I know there's still app developers out there with their feet up doing nothing and they're still getting paid for subscriptions. Um, like we saw them all the time, Vodafone. In fact, a friend of mine created a subscription service just for weather updates and he bought it. He bought a convertible out of it, like just five, five euro a month or something. But like the numbers of people, people don't, I think that's the other thing with digital marketing that people have find trouble getting their head around is the number of people you can access. It's just a numbers game, you know, it, 1% conversion on 5 million people will pay for your house. Like, <laughs> All right. Yeah, that totally makes sense. When you put it like that, it makes me want to go out and, and hire someone to do marketing because you told me not to do it myself. So don't do it yourself. <laughs> well, you can, but like only for fun. Yeah. I mean, I, in all honesty, I would only really do it for fun and for the learning experience. I think if I was ever really serious about marketing something, I would just pay someone because the amount, like even for me to get halfway decent to what they know even if i learned really quickly and let's say it took six months there's six months that i've wasted of not not getting people into whatever product it is that i'm trying to sell yeah it's crazy yeah like i'm so guilty of it myself i do my own website and i just i fiddle around with it for a whole day and i'm like oh my god what am i like what am i thinking it it, it takes you away because i I do like so i do my own website because i like mine's super basic right and i know how to do it so it's fine it's a it's a static site it doesn't need much work but I do the same thing. Like last weekend, I was like, I'm going to spend an hour. And all I had to do was get my podcast show notes onto my website, right? Which is literally copy and paste each episode into a page and publish it. And I think it took me like two days because it, it went from, I need to get that to, oh, I need to add the player. Then I need to add an image. Oh, I don't like that image. Get a different image. It's the wrong size. The text is the wrong color. And by the end of it, you've done nothing. And then I'd realized after the whole time, it's like, oh, I've got this really nice template and I've got zero content. That's why you pay somebody. Like, that's it. That's exactly it. Yeah, it's true. They would not spend their time doing that. What would your daily rate be as a developer for your top client? Like for two days, you know, it's just, it's crazy. Yeah, but we still, we all do it. Do you know what I mean? It's like, it's just there to do. And you kind of go, I'll just, I'll just do it for a couple hours. And, but um, I, th- I, th- I think like, that's the difference I found somebody talked to me a while ago about you know the difference between a, a freelancer and a, an entrepreneur like the skills that you need to be an entrepreneur are different from being a knowledge worker like working for someone who's paying you a salary is different from being an entrepreneur and like I think that's part of the entrepreneur's skill set is being able to just go oh, I'm not I'm not going to do this thing I have to go and make sales and like that's what I, that's what I've learned from stepping into the sales world that I've had to really beat into myself a lot of the time I have to really coach myself to pick up the phone and actually talk to people because i hate doing it that's a strange thing to say as a salesperson but i could totally understand where you're coming from so i guarantee you most salespeople feel the same way like good salespeople it's just it's really hard like you get one rejection you feel awful for the rest of the day you know but it's the way to do it you have to like so i i have this thing called abs anything but selling (laughs) 
I just I always suffer from any ABS. All right. So what? So normally I ask developers, what do you think makes a good developer? But my question for you, seeing that the majority of your career or all of your career really has been sales and or marketing is what do you think makes a great sales and or marketing? It was going to be both, but you said they're different. So you can pick which one you want to answer. But what do you think makes someone great essentially at what you do? I think a great sales and marketing person loves to help people. Like if if that's not what motivates you, then there's probably other things that motivate you, like, you know, solving problems, mathematics, whatever it is. That's fine. But I think... If your thing is like you really care about people and you really want to help them, especially in 2020, 2021, like I've written, I've written a couple of blogs about this. It's like, that's what works because it's the person who's person who's selling, who's like got a product, but they hear the customer refer to something that they're really concerned about. And they, they zone in on that instead of trying to push their product. They're the ones that make the deals and they're the ones that create relationships. And remember that like orange juice idea, like that all the values spread over the whole journey. So like the quick sale, the, the really hard push to sell something is it doesn't work anymore. And um, I think, yeah, if you just, if you figure out what you're doing to help people, that really kind of sets you apart as a salesperson and a marketing person for that matter. And you can take it back to your blog articles. Like if you're writing a blog article, like how's this going to help anybody, you know? Yeah, that's how totally it makes sense. All right, cool. All right, I like that answer. Um, so then the last question, where can people find you online? Where do you want me to direct people to anything that you do in the Mount Harbor website? I'm sure there's people listening that are in a company or high up in a company that, that might be interested in what you do. So, uh, Well, Mount Harbor uh, loves to help people. Um, so certainly you can get, get at me uh, through the website. Like there's loads of book a meeting links there. So like the best way to do it is just book a meeting with me and we can have a chat. Like you can talk to me for 20 minutes about your business. Like it doesn't matter what it is. I'll, as I've shown you, <laughs> I'll talk about <laughs> I'll talk about your business any any time because I love I love talking to people about their um their businesses as you know from when we met like I I just thrive off like figuring out like angles on people's stuff and I've seen so many incidents of how people are doing sales and marketing I can pretty much spot from a mile like what you need to do next so um that's probably the best way through the through the website or whatever other links you want to throw up. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that I have a huge listener reach, but I imagine that you'll get a decent amount of people trying to book time with you and probably talk about stuff that's not at all related to sales, but you know. That's fine. It's a numbers game, Rob. It's grand. I don't mind. Big thanks to today's guest, Andrew McAvinci. You can find Andrew on LinkedIn and you can check out Mount Arbor at mountarbor.io. You can also book a free consultation with Andrew to discuss sales and marketing for your idea or business on the Mount Arbor website. As always, you can find the show notes for this episode at coffeeencodingpod.com slash episode 14. Finally, if you like the show, you can subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and don't forget to leave us a rating or a review. You can do that either via Apple Podcasts or via podchaser.com. The link is in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so with a coffee donation at coffeeencodingpod.com slash donate. Caffeine is literally what fuels this podcast. If you'd like to connect with me, you can do so on Twitter at lowcarbrob. And if you'd like to connect with like-minded developers and other listeners, you can do so in our Slack community at coffeeencodingpod.com slash Slack. Thank you for listening and I'll catch you on the next episode of the Coffee Encoding Podcast.